Do you know about Pride Socks? They are a lifestyle brand empowering individuals to take pride in who they are so they chase and accomplish their dreams. They niche out the retro rainbow socks, shirts, hats, shoelaces, and a variety of positive messaging accessories. And moms, they have positive notepads for writing love notes to your kids. You can put them in their lunchbox or homework folder and remind them how loved and awesome they are. Pride Socks is inclusive of everyone. They firmly believe everyone has something to be proud of. When you celebrate who you are, you will live your best life. Check out their Instagram to see how everyone rocks their Pride Socks gear. Hey friends, welcome to episode 37 of the Lucky Few podcast, where we are shifting the narrative by shouting the worth of people with Down syndrome. This is Heather. Mercedes. And Micah is not with us today, but today... We are really excited about this episode because we have the opportunity to chat with and learn from Meg Wilkes and Stephanie Meredith about the work they're doing to redefine the essential information need, excuse me, about the work they are doing to redefine the essential informational needs of parents receiving a diagnosis of Down syndrome. And this is an important topic, one that comes up a lot, just in normal conversation with our friends who have children with Down syndrome and just even on this podcast. So we know this is going to be an important and interesting conversation to have here. And we're super thankful and excited that they're here with us today. Welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. Okay, so Mercedes, the topic of how a downstream diagnosis is delivered and received, it comes up a lot, right? Like here right. in conversation, I feel like just talking to friends, um, any kind of a group where you're with a lot of moms who have a child with Down syndrome, it comes up. And I know that we talk about it here when we're listening, but it's also different for you and me because for anyone who's been listening for to us for a while or familiar with us, um, we both have adopted our kids. And so, um, Micah usually is the one to talk in, to speak into this. And I know for me, I had ideas about, I had a moment of like, um, feeling a sense of loss or feeling a sense of sadness that I was going to have a child with down syndrome, even in adoption. Um, and on the other side of it, realizing that that came from false narratives that have been put into society and, that that had been like ingrained in me that down syndrome was bad and scary so even as as an adoptive parent it was like i know for my first one i have two kids with down syndrome but it felt really scary because the world had told me it was scary you know even though it wasn't like i got this diagnosis but it came to me that way um which is super interesting because i can't not being able to relate to a mom who's getting a new diagnosis in the way in which she's receiving it but i also had like negativity tied to the idea that I was going to have a child with Down syndrome. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Did Definitely. you feel, but you and Andy, or you had, did you have that negative feeling at all with Sunflower or not at all going into it? Um, I think my, I call it more, not, I don't know if it was negativity, but I did have a moment of mourning when um, I, after I should say my son was born. So sunflowers our oldest and our first. So, um, she was all I knew as a newborn and she was perfect baby, like perfect baby mm-hmm. and <laughs> so easy and everything was fun and so exciting and she was really healthy. So like we just, it, it felt like bringing home a newborn straight from the hospital when we didn't have a lot of doctor's appointments um, and I brought home Rhodes. Sunflower was 18 months at that time. And, and she had delays like that come with having Down syndrome, physical delays, but nothing really too much. Um, but then I brought home my newborn who just feels stronger, who just nursed and cried. And there was like a difference. There was a difference. And so I remember being like, whoa, I think it hit me in that moment that Sunflower does have Down syndrome. And um, 
I don't know why, but it just, it made me, I, I had like a, a morning. I also think I had postpartum depression, but I had like a morning of like, what does that mean for her? Um, because I finally had, not in a comparing way in a negative, but I finally had another baby to compare what that means, if that makes sense of what um, the differences were. And not, I don't think that's bad, but for me, it was like, oh, there is a difference. And she does have to work, she does have to work harder. And I think it was a, more of a morning that she has to work so hard. But now that I know her, she's like the toughest girl ever. She'll probably have a gym membership before I ever do. And like, she's just like, <laughs> like that. She's like, oh, that's hard for me. Then I will overcome it. So now I'm, I, that morning didn't last long, but it mourned, I mourned because I, there was a difference and I could see it in development. Um, but not in personality. She has a stronger personality than my son right now. Not to compare him again. Sorry guys. But, (laughs) um, she's just, I don't know. They're just awesome. And and then we just went on our way, but I did have a mourning period of what it meant for sunflower to have down syndrome and, um, how that would affect her life and how much she would have to overcome and be strong. And I was going to be right beside her. It was like all that finally sunk in when she was 18 months old. And I was holding another baby. <laughs> I was yeah. like, whoa, yeah. Sunny. No, it's wild. And I, I think now, and we'll talk to our friends about this since they're not super busy with the study they're already doing. It would be an interesting study to talk to adoptive parents who have a child with Down syndrome. And that's the, they, they, a lot of people will have a child with Down syndrome biologically and then adopt, which is another conversation. But like parents like you or I, or a lot of people I know who they don't ever get the diagnosis because they choose, they choose it through adoption because I've also had similar moments like that where I did have the moment in the beginning where it was like, I don't know. Um, like this all still feels scary. And even because I think culturally the fact of like that we told people we're adopting a child with down syndrome, it Mm -hmm. felt like that's not something that you celebrate, which I think comes from outside, um, messaging and, even though I wanted to celebrate her, that felt conflicting, but yeah, I felt some of my mourning later on with Macy, like, Oh, this is, this is going to be different or harder and realizing that as she got older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. So, but that's not what this conversation's about. It's not about, <laughs> <laughs> it's not about us, Mercedes. Ah. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> but it is an important conversation. Okay. <laughs> So I guess let's get right to it with this important conversation. Um, I'll give you a brief introduction to our guests, and then they can tell you more about themselves and the work that they are doing to shift the Down syndrome narrative. Um, Meg is pursuing a master's degree in genetic counseling at the University of South Carolina, and her thesis is on redefining the essential informational needs of parents receiving a diagnosis of Down syndrome. This study is expanding on a study from 2009. The data from that study was instrumental in creating and shaping some of the diagnosis guidelines we have now. And also with us today will be Stephanie, and she is the medical outreach director at the University of Kentucky, who is overseeing Meg's research. Um, I'm really excited to hear from both of you ladies, and I just can't wait to welcome you to the Lucky Few podcast. Hi, ladies. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, we really appreciate it. We're so happy here. Say, Say who you are because people can't see you, like with your voice, and then we can try, people can follow along. Hi, I'm Meg. Okay. I'm Stephanie Meredith. Okay, perfect. Hi. Um, okay, so Stephanie, why don't we start off with you? Um, will you tell us who you are and what you do and how you have a connection with the Down syndrome community? Great. So, yes, I work, like you said, I work as the medical outreach director at the University of Kentucky's Human Development Institute. And I've written books about different genetic condi- conditions for new and expectant parents for over 10 years now. And at our Lettercase National Center for Prenatal and Postnatal Resources, we primarily create materials for doctors to give to their patients so that they can better understand the diagnosis and get 
not just the medical issues, but also some of the life outcomes that come along with that, um, including the progress over the past 10 years, which is really important, not 10 years, but 50 years, really. Um, and we also run the Down syndrome pregnancy program, which is for people who have gotten that diagnosis and then are preparing for the birth of a baby with Down syndrome and have a lot more detailed questions about, you know, how do we tell our friends and family, uh, possibly preparing for a NICU stay, preparing siblings and things like that. So we really try to create those resources that are available to clinicians and expectant parents to better support them through the diagnosis experience. And I, just for my personal connection, so my background is as a technical writer and educator, but I'm also the mother of a 19-year-old with Down syndrome, Andy, and then I also have two younger daughters who are 17 and 12. And from my personal experience, I actually had a pretty wonderful diagnosis experience where our doctor, and it was postnatal, my doctor was fairly matter-of-fact about it, but our hospital was pretty progressive in having people on staff who had children with different genetic conditions. And they, she came in the day after our son was born and handed us the book uh, Babies with Down Syndrome at the time. And she showed us a picture of her son on a bike. And for me, that was such a transformational moment to know that that could be, our, that our life could still be fun. And so that was really meaningful to get that kind of support at that time. And I remember at that point, most of my concerns, again, were about, you know, would other kids be kind? What would life be like? How would, you know, we provide for him in the future? But it, it wasn't the list of, I, I mean, the medical issues were important too, but that was the stuff that I was, I really wanted more information about um, to know what life would be like. Hmm. I love that. Meg, how about you? Hi, everyone. I'm Meg. Uh, like Mercedes said, I am currently a senior genetic counseling student at the University of South Carolina, and I don't actually have a child or family member with Down syndrome, so I don't have as much to say in terms of a personal diagnosis experience, but I'm hoping to learn about the diagnosis experiences of many through the research that we're able to do now. And my first kind of major introduction to the Down syndrome community was through my church youth group uh, when I was in middle school. And I was a camp counselor at Rainbow Express Camp, uh, which involved working with children with various disabilities in the community and just had a blast and continued doing that throughout my middle school years and high school years. And then I went off to college at Clemson University, go Tigers. Uh, where I was involved with the Clemson Life Program, uh, basically from the beginning of my time there. Uh, I started as a volunteer uh, with the program, so I would frequently go to lunch with a bunch of the different students, uh, as well as one of my favorite things, attending some Zumba-esque classes <laughs> with uh, the entire kind of student body there. Um, and that was just so much fun. And I loved that so much that I kind of wanted to pursue involvement on a deeper level and became a student mentor there, which was actually technically a class that was extremely competitive to actually sign up for and get a spot, if that tells you anything. Everybody loved being involved. And so that involved kind of meeting with one of the Clemson Life students, at least on a weekly basis, really kind of getting to know them on a personal level helping them with any issues they might be experiencing or just talking about their progress through classes and just really getting to know them as a friend. And that was just a really, really great experience. And so going into genetic counseling for graduate school, I knew I wanted to continue along in that kind of community. And so I'm really glad that I'm able to continue this through the research that I am now doing. Yeah. And you, Meg, had reached out to us and just simply asked if we could share your research survey with our listeners so that you can, I'm assuming, get more data. Um, and then we just said, well, this sounds really interesting. How about come on the show and tell us all about it? And so let's talk about that. Like, tell it, I want to know more about why, like why this project for you, and then go into the details of it, what it is, and how we can help, like what you what you're looking for from us and from our audience. Those are three big things. So start with the, the why. Why this as your research topic? Absolutely. So coming into school, um, I had actually interviewed with another person that's on my thesis committee, Dr. Richard Ferrante. 
And he knew about my involvement in the Clemson Life community and my passion for this kind of community and actually kind of came to me with part of the idea for our project. So about 10 years ago in 2009, another committee member of mine, Katie Barrier, who I'll kind of introduce in a second, did her thesis project on this idea of defining these essential informational items in a balanced presentation of both a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome as well as postnatal diagnosis. And it was this very massive, very well done study that she did. And Dr. Ferranti approached me basically with this idea of a lot has changed in the past even 10 years since we initially did this study. I think that it'd be very valuable to look into revisiting this idea because ultimately from this study that she initially did, she was able to publish alongside several other author authors the practice guidelines for communicating a prenatal or postnatal diagnosis of Down syndrome through the National Society of Genetic Counselors, which is kind of our big governing body, so to speak. So genetic counselors from across the country and really across the world can use this resource um, to in order to present a balanced informative diagnosis to parents. And so basically we wanted to revisit this because of kind of changing landscapes, differing resources that have become available and just overall increased opportunities to those available with Down syndrome um, so that we can just provide a better experience to parents going forward as medical professionals as a whole. That's so great. Um, I guess so what are your, well, we, I think we'll get, I was going to say, what are your hopes for this? But what, tell us more about the project. Like, what does this entail? What are you, is that, yeah, what, tell us more. Like, what's the steps you're taking? What, what are the things you're doing? Tell us more. So we are surveying kind of four general groups. So we're getting both the genetic counselor perspective as well as the parent perspective. And we're splitting each of those into two, looking at, kind of parents from the receiving of a prenatal diagnosis versus a postnatal diagnosis, and then prenatal genetic counselors versus postnatal or pediatric genetic counselors. And we're reaching out to them with this kind of list of different features or informational items that they can then decide whether or not they find this to be something that is essential for them to hear at that initial presentation of their diagnosis versus important, but not quite as essential in that initial presentation or something that isn't as important in their eyes or not as relevant. And so that's kind of what we're doing through this online anonymous survey that we are distributing out to parents and genetic counselors, trying to get their perspectives. And then what we're going to do is compare these groups to the old study see if we've made any progress in terms of what genetic counselors and parents are thinking, if they're you know, thinking the same kinds of things, if their thoughts have changed in the past 10 years due to changes that have occurred, um, and just trying to get a better idea so that we can better inform medical professionals to give that balanced presentation of information that parents really want and need to hear at that initial presentation of a diagnosis. How many parents are you hoping to talk to? So initially we had 687 parents complete the survey in 2009, which is great considering I know Katie didn't have a podcast to go on or as many kind of social media outlets <laughs> and resources. So we're hoping to get the same amount of parents to participate or even more this time if we can. Um, and we also had around 250 genetic counselors complete the survey as well. So we're hoping for similar numbers if we can. Um, it would be great if we could even exceed those numbers. Stephanie, mm -hmm. did you want to say something? Yeah, so typically, <clears throat> sorry, typically medical professionals are primarily exposed to that medical model of disability. So what's really great about this survey is that it helps to define what is also important. So it gives, it helps to create that bigger scope of what parents value as well as some of those medical conditions that might come up. And so, and actually when we create our resources, we kind of create a checklist 
based on what's found in research like this and make sure that we tick off all those marks. So when we have people who participate in the research and tell us, you know, that different items are important and they end up rising to the top, then we end up covering that kind of information in uh, in both the guidelines, like Meg's saying, but also in some of the resources that go directly to new expectant parents. So, so it's important to get that most up-to-date information. I get excited about this because um, on the podcast, you know, our tagline is shifting the Down syndrome narrative. And I have talked at this point in my life as a mother to children with Down syndrome and then in my career space as well, I've talked to thousands of moms and it is a similar story, right? And there's, I, you know, I'm not a researcher. So what you guys are doing is I'm so thankful for because mm-hmm. I would be a hot mess in that space. Um, but I, in talking to these moms, I've always thought like, I wish that someone would do what you're doing, like get this on paper. Because what I hear is I had all this information and I felt so upset about my child having Down syndrome. And then they get to the other side is what I call it, where they realize, oh, I didn't need those fears weren't weren't real. Like they, it, I didn't need to feel that fear because this is what my child ended up being like, or, you know, like it was, um, I just think it's super important for parents to know what other parents are experiencing and thinking. And a lot of times that's not the information they're getting when they're getting a diagnosis. Like there's nothing about here's, a, here's these thousand parents who have this to say. So I really appreciate that aspect of this study. Well, thanks. Well, I know when we got our diagnosis, I was 23 years old, and one of our big concerns was how are we going to afford any therapy that he might need, and we'll do whatever it takes to take care of him. And so to learn about something like early intervention, right, Mm -hmm. you know, immediately after diagnosis was such a comfort to Mm -hmm. know that there were resources out there. And so I think that really, you know, when you find out that those are the priorities that families have, you can make sure to address those issues right from the outset and help alleviate some of those fears that might be grounded either sometimes in stigma and sometimes Mm -hmm. just lack of awareness about the available supports and services. Yeah. Do you find that most is grounded in stigma or lack of awareness? I think there's a combination really. I mean, we've got, we've got a lack of awareness about, you know, talking to, to expectant parents, a lot of times they aren't familiar with early intervention and just some of those services. But I also think there's that element of stigma because we have populations that really, I mean, people with Down syndrome didn't have access to a free public education Mm -hmm. until 1975. And Mm -hmm. you've got, you know, early intervention really wasn't around until the nineties. So a, a lot of these resources are fairly new and they have, there have been evolving outcomes based on those supports and services. And sometimes when people have outdated ideas from the days of institutionalization, then they don't understand what, um, what current outcomes are. Mm -hmm. And I think too, when you probably, since I didn't get a prenatal or postnatal diagnosis, um, all the what ifs, so all the health issues that you get told or all that, I feel like that can just, when you're holding a newborn, sometimes I feel like you can go to like, oh, they will have all of these things rather than taking them as, okay, these are possibilities. And and I wonder, do parents, new parents necessarily need to hear at that time of being given the diagnosis of the negative what ifs? Mm. Unless they actually have it, unless their child actually has those markers. I, I, I can totally see where you're coming from there because especially and it's especially difficult prenatally when you don't know what some what medical issues might arise. But I remember when Andy was born, just going back to that stigma idea, my main fear was would other kids be kind to him? Right. And then to find out about, you know, inclusion being the norm and to find out that he would be able to access classes because my idea about Down syndrome was based on kids being secluded in classrooms and just coming out during assemblies. And his reality has been so much different than that, where he's been really embraced by the students in his community. And and to know all that really does, I mean, that addresses one of those primary fears that I had. Mm-hmm. 
So good. Um, you guys talked a little bit about how society and the culture has shifted in the past 10 years. Can you tell me what you mean by that and possibly what has contributed to that change? Yeah, absolutely. So my kind of thing that I love being involved in Clemson life for a few years is this idea of the evolving post-secondary education programs. And I looked up some articles for my thesis proposal initially, and that stated that the number of secondary education programs available to individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities has grown from 110 programs across 28 states in 2006, all the way to 269 programs across 49 states in 2019. And I thought that that was just such a monumental increase and that's become so much more of the norm to talk about these things. Um, and especially since the initial study done in 2009 ultimately came up with this list of 34 essential items that across all four of those groups of prenatal parents, postnatal parents, prenatal GCs and postnatal GCs, um, they all across the board ranked them as essential. But some things that were kind of left out at that time in 2009 um, of the extremely essential group, maybe important but not essential, were things like competitive employment, independent living, college attendance, participation in Special Olympics, and the positive impact on siblings. Um, and while parents still rated this as highly important, at the time it wasn't perceived to be something that was integral to mention um, as a GC to those parents at that initial diagnosis experience. And part of me just wonders if that might change in this current study, just due to the sheer increase of the number of these kind of post-secondary education opportunities and different transitional programs that are now available to individuals with Down syndrome. Uh, and another big thing that has happened in our kind of clinical realm is the increased uh, clinical implementation of non-invasive prenatal screening or testing, uh, also known as cell-free DNA screening. A lot of people know it as the gender test, which is not what we as genetic counselors necessarily want it to be known for. Um, but it can, in fact, give kind of a chance for different chromosomal conditions as well as the sex of the baby. Uh, and that was clinically implemented in 2011 after this initial study was done and after the Down syndrome practice guidelines were written from that prior study. And I think it'd be interesting to see the differences since that test has now come out and is being used quite widely at this point. And just to see if the exposure of parents receiving this initial diagnosis is gonna be increased to genetic counselors specifically. Because at the time of the study, Katie found that only 7.5% of these diagnoses were given by genetic counselors at the time. And in our current kind of practice, I'm wondering if that number has increased and therefore this kind of perception of the diagnosis experience has changed since then. Do you go into this with, um, I like you believe you will find these outcomes. Like you have a, you've written down, like we believe these will be the outcomes and then you're looking for those. Or you go into it with none of that in mind, just, just finding out the, the, I would say a little bit of both. Um, we hypothesize in general that we will find changes within the past 10 years since that prior study that will occur. But at the same time, we're not necessarily putting a finger on what exactly those changes are going to be. Um, we just have kind of general hypotheses and we want to reevaluate the study completely. Um, we're basically replicating it almost exactly as how it was 10 years ago in order to get that true comparison between the two groups. But it's hard to say without results, um, but those are kind of general hypotheses we have. I, I know that a couple of areas where we specifically thought there would be some change is in the last survey, there was a question about um, employment in a workshop setting mm -hmm. and then, you know, as compared to competitive employment. And I think that is an er area where disability rights has really progressed so that 
I mean, for this current crop of children who are being born, I don't anticipate that workshop settings will, I, I mean, that's, that's really going out of favor in, in most places. Mm. And so, and just, can I share a story? Mm -hmm. I don't know if we have time, but, um, as far as my personal experience with that, with my son, this is my one of my favorite Andy stories, but we had one day where he was 16 and we were driving home from school and he said, mom, I want to go work at Publix, which is our grocery store down the street. And he said that because he had some friends from school working there. And I said, you know, okay. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, I got to call Vogue Rehab. I got to figure out a job coach situation. And in Andy's head, he was telling me what he was going to do that day. And so after I finished cooking dinner and my other daughter went to go get him, she said, mom, he's not, he's not here. And his bike was gone. And I, I had two missing, I had two messages that I'd missed from him where he told me, mom, I go to Publix, I go get a job, you, you come get it. And I, you know, I'm panicked and I call the store and I say, please don't let him leave. It's getting dark. And I don't want him riding home by himself in the dark. But I got over there he, and he had gone into the, um, he'd gone to a friend who worked there. He'd gone to the customer service desk and asked how to get a job. And he'd gotten pretty far in the process. And, you know, he had no doubt that he could get hired at the grocery store just like his friends. And these were just friends that were in his inclusive classes that he'd always gone to school with. And I loved that. And as I was driving over there in a panic, you know, my husband said, would you have ever imagined when he was born that this would be our fear at 16 years old? And I'm like, no, this is kind of amazing. So and they hired him pretty much yeah, they said if he's he's demonstrating this kind of initiative, we won't have someone like him working here. And he's worked there for over two years, and there's always been the expectation that he would earn more than minimum wage. So, uh, um, I think that I think there are definitely er- areas like that where there's been progress over the past ten years, like Meg said with the post secondary. But I also think the availability of peer to peer support on social networks is huge in shifting the narrative and perspectives about inclusion and, you know, providing families some peer peer support, even when they're dealing with some of the more complex issues. So I think that those were additional questions that we added as far as what what the value of photography and also Mm -hmm. the value of online support. I know when Mason came home, I mean, Mason's 11, so she's younger than your Andy, but I mean, 11 years ago or 10 and a half, cause she's a little bit older or she's a few months old and she came home. There was nothing even 11 years ago. I got that same, the babies with down syndrome book, but I remember going to the library and searching on YouTube and it, you know, social media didn't exist like it does. Um, and it's like, it's social media has changed so much. I feel like I want someone to do that study alone. Like how mm-hmm. has social media changed the way um, diagnosis are, are given and received or received Mm -hmm. really, because it's, it, it, but it's also new. It's still like the wild, wild West, you know, it's social media is, it's also new, but it's been such an incredible tool Mm -hmm. for our community. I think, or it can, it has been, and it can be, how do we continue to make it so? But that's Mm -hmm. another study that you guys can do because I'm not good at studies. (laughs) Well, and I do have a cool story about that too, because I've got, I had a, friend who randomly donated a hundred dollars to our, to our work. And I, I, it was kind of out of the blue and he ended up sending me a message on Facebook and he said, I wanted you to know that this didn't just come out of the blue. It was a specific, there was a specific reason behind it. He said, my wife had some indications um, that we might be expecting a baby with down syndrome. And he said, so he said, I remembered about your son and we went through your Facebook posts and we looked at all your pictures and then we looked at your resources that you work on. And he said, it was such a comfort during that time. And he said, we didn't end up having a baby with Down syndrome, but it was so nice to know that what life would look like if we did. And mm-hmm. so, so, and that, that's something that would never have happened before social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, oh, go ahead, Merce. Sorry. I was going to say, too, I wonder what it would look like if a doctor mentioned social media within. I feel like it's like convincing doctors to be like, you know, moms, look up 
Down syndrome hashtags on Instagram. I'm trying to picture this happening, but they should say that because it is so true that photos are valuable. Then you have right there captions from moms and dads who are praising their kid or who are all vacationing and they're telling a funny story or... And like you said, I feel like like when you saw that picture of the little girl or boy, I forgot, on a bike, those are things that bring comfort because that's actually what we care about as parents and about how others are going to treat our child, but that they live a fun, fulfilled life. Um, and I wonder how we cross that bridge because I feel like I could see a miss between medical doctors or nurses suggesting to look on Facebook or Instagram, social media as answers or comfort, you know? Yeah. And some, Oh, go ahead, Meg. Oh, I was just going to say, I obviously can't really speak to like other kind of practitioners and medical professionals, but I know it's becoming more and more common practice to us in the genetic counseling world to actually refer families to like different Facebook support groups for Down syndrome or really any other condition. And it's actually been very helpful for people if they have a child maybe with a very rare condition, Mm -hmm. they don't know anybody that they could speak peer to peer with near them. And so sometimes our Facebook kind of support groups that we find become our most valuable resource that we do recommend to patients and their families. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. And I know that in our resources, which are reviewed by representatives of the national medical and advocacy organizations, when we did an update in 2017, we did add Down syndrome diagnosis network, which is, they kind of make it easier for us to do. Yeah. Because they're an organization, but then they provide that online peer to peer support. And then the other piece of that is that we have, since we started our creating these resources, put a real high priority on photography and we try to do photography where we take pictures of people as though you're looking through a window and seeing their lives. So we interview the families and find out what their interests are and take pictures of them on location doing whatever it is in ballet or baseball or, you know, whatever they say they want to do. And then the other key for us is making sure there's, um, broad cultural socioeconomic ethnic representation and one thing that i'm super proud of is that we in in our letter case resources anyway we match specifically the demographics in the u.s which is kind of and we make it available in 10 different languages translations are also an important consideration when you're looking at priorities as well because you want to make sure that those Uh, sometimes most vulnerable populations are getting the resources that they need. Mm. Yes. And amen. I love that. I love that. And there are other, I think that people are coming up with ways to do like what you were saying, Mercedes, like marry the two Mm -hmm. um, and seeing the power in storytelling. And Mm -hmm. there's a, a newer nonprofit called hope story. That's about getting, have you heard of hope story? Stephanie or Meg? Okay. I'm sure you guys are connected. I feel like all those spaces are connected. This isn't <laughs> the research area. Like this isn't my space, so I'm not in all of it, but I'm sure you all know, you all know each other because you guys are doing such important work. Um, okay. Mercedes, do you have any other questions that you want to ask? Oh, um, I actually did. Okay. okay so, um, <laughs> I went on letter case and, um, Stephanie is letter case, the organization you work for. Did you start that or you just work for them or tell me about that? We actually, so gosh, we wrote the letter case books in 2008 and then it ended up getting folded under the university of Kentucky in 2012. And when I say we, uh, I actually wrote them all with, my husband doing the design and our friend doing the editorial photography. And then we ended up having them submitted to the uh, Down syndrome consensus group, which ended up, which included the representatives of the national medical and advocacy organizations. Awesome. And then it got, rep- it got folded under the university of Kentucky in 2012. Cause we tried to form a nonprofit and I'm not so great at that. I'm much better in the academic world and being, being wrapped in there. And then, in 2010, we created the Down syndrome pregnancy resources. And so when we brought it all under the university, we created one umbrella 
that was the National Center for Prenatal and Postnatal Resources. And now the letter case resources aren't just Down syndrome specific, they cover also other genetic conditions. And we have the same genetic conditions consensus group that reviews all of them. Oh, that's awesome. There was one thing I was noticing on um, your website, um, and it was uh, um, find links to the Down syndrome genetic conditions information acts passed in each state. And then you have all these different states highlighted in maroon or summer in gray. And California was in gray. What does that mean? That means you do not have a Down syndrome information act. Is that bad? (laughs) How do we change that? I think that the acts can be helpful, but only insofar as there's a dissemination plan with them. What's been kind of frustrating in some areas, Kentucky included, where I live and work, is that the laws are passed and they end up being a page on the Department of Public Health website. We don't know how many clinicians actually consult that, you know, and so it's really important that if you do pass an act, you also have the dissemination plan with it. And states that have done a good job with that are Massachusetts and Washington State. Washington actually did a big push from their Department of Public Health to inform the clinicians through e-blasts and social media and things like that. Um, And Massachusetts ended up providing some funding toward it to disseminate books to clinicians and then also to fund a position to provide some funding to the state organization to provide support to families. So where we, but, but in California, you're really ripe to be able to do that because you have that California screening program and you should be able to reach everyone if you passed a law like that. Mm. So those of someone in California, who's not me because this isn't in my wheelhouse and at 37 <laughs> years old, I know what is and is not, <laughs> but maybe you Mercedes, no, oh my someone, gosh. Okay. <laughs> um, make it happen. Make it happen. Um, all right, ladies, we have to start wrapping it up here. I'm super thankful for this, for that you're doing this work and using your brilliance in this way and mm-hmm. that you would come share with us. We're really, really grateful for that. I'm thankful that you're, that you were on the podcast today. And so what we're going to do next is we're going to hop over to some good news. But before we do that, um, I want to give you guys a chance to say anything else you want to say. And then also, let our listeners know, because as soon as they're done listening, they're going to do whatever you tell them to do to make this project successful, this research project successful and wonderful. So tell anything else you want to say, and then what, tell us all the ways our listeners can find you and can join in. Appreciate you, and you're really contributing to our work. And basically, if you are a parent of a child with Down syndrome and you have not yet participated in this study, we invite you to participate. Uh, And this is open to parents who have received both prenatal and postnatal diagnoses, uh, because we are going to see if there are differences in informational needs of those groups. And if there are any genetic counselors listening, you're also welcome to participate. And so I have shared the invitational letters for both parents of children with Down syndrome, as well as genetic counselors with the lovely ladies here at the Lucky Few. And so they have those informational kind of letters that summarize what we're looking at in this study and also contain the link that you can go to in order to take this anonymous online survey. It'll take you approximately 15 to 20 minutes to complete if you decide to complete it. And so it has four different parts. The first section is about your child's diagnosis and your diagnosis experience as a whole. The second section involves the rating of these different informational items associated with Down syndrome um, that are presented during a diagnosis disclosure. The third is composed of free response questions. And the fourth just gathers very general demographic information. And so if you're interested, uh, they have the links to the study. And you can reach me by my email or phone if you have any questions at all regarding the study, which I will also give my information um, to these ladies. And I just want to say that I really believe that shifting the narrative for that diagnosis experience is really based on building relationships of trust between clinicians and the advocacy community, and that Meg is really providing a great forum 
to generate better understanding so that that can happen. Awesome. I love it. And then Stephanie, where can people find out more about you or follow along with your work? Uh, you can find out more about our work at lettercase.org and downsyndromepregnancy.org. And we work at creating those resources for families and clinicians and also giving presentations at their conferences nationwide to engage in those conversations. Perfect. And um, this will be at theluckyfewpodcast.com. If you go to this episode, episode 37, and there will be links to quickly and easily, because we need quick and easy 2019, guys, <laughs> um, get you to the, all of these places to do all of this. All right, ladies. So we're going to take a word from our sponsor, then we're going to hit up some good news. Stephanie, you have some good news to share with us about Andy when we come back. Yes. Okay, perfect. Not only do our friends at Pride Socks sell socks and shirts, but they also collaborate with individuals to create custom socks and donate proceeds to custom for a cause. Last September, they collaborated with Ruby's Rainbow and Ruby designed a sock with all of her favorite things. Seriously, her socks were so cute. They had rainbows, unicorns, and goldfish with the message Dream Big as a reminder to go for your dreams. For every pair of socks you buy, $5 goes back to Ruby's Rainbow. Ruby's Rainbow provides adults with Down syndrome scholarships to attend college, and since they've launched this sock, they've donated $15,000 in less than a year. This year, they are adding a shirt to the mix, so please go ahead and visit pridesocks.com backslash ruby to get your pair of socks to support the Down syndrome community and watch their video. Believe me, you will need a tissue. Use code THELUCKYFEW for 15% off your purchase. Go to pridesocks.com or pridesocks.com backslash ruby for the Ruby's Rainbow Socks and follow Pride Socks on Instagram at Pride Socks. All right, it's time for some good news. I just went there because Micah's not here. Mercedes is dancing, but she's not <laughs> singing. <laughs> Good news. Um, Stephanie, do you want to start us off with some good news? I would love to start off. So my son, Andy, actually graduated this past uh, June 1st. So that, you know, and I guess the message I'd like to put out there is I remember hearing when he was younger that it was really kind of a cliff when you hit the end of those school years. And we are so excited that the future is actually so bright. So mm. he is currently working at the grocery store, like I mentioned, but he's also working on developing his career as a photographer and he's going on a church mission and he is coaching lacrosse. Aww. So he's got a very busy schedule and then he's looking forward to hopefully in a couple of years going to our post-secondary program near us. And we're very lucky in Georgia to have seven of them. So, so I, that's just my good news is that when, once you hit this stage, uh, it's not, it, it hasn't been nearly as scary as I thought. It's pretty rad actually. That awesome. is really good news. <laughs> I love that. That's so good. I'm um, okay. I've got some good news. This last weekend we were at a friend's house and they have a pool with a ton of kids and Macy is our cautious girl. She has been cautious from the second she entered our lives, at least. And she, um, at 11, is just starting to swim independently without a floaty. But she's not a super strong swimmer. And so she'll be able to navigate a pool pretty safely. I, I would not leave her there without adult supervision at this point in life, but pretty safely. Um, and then there's a diving board at this pool and it was just like kid after kid after kid diving and Mason would step on it and then she'd be like, no, no, it's fine. You go, you go, you go. And like push people <laughs> in front of her and she just wouldn't do it. And so she started jumping off the side of the pool into the deep end, which I watched and was amazed. And then finally she got up on the diving board and just jumped in and she did it like a dozen times. Aww. And it's awesome. Cause you know, you jump in the water, you sink to the bottom and then yeah. like she gets up, swims to the edge, pulls herself out, which takes a lot of strength mm -hmm. and then jumps back in. So that was so fun. And then August, um, and I can't remember if I shared this already, but if I did, I'll share it again. Cause it's worth it. But when we were in Hawaii, he took his float, he got his floaty off and he was fully swimming in the shallow end, like from, like from me to the stairs or from the stairs <gasps> to me, but putting his head and his body all the way under kicking his feet. Like he could fully I get to it. me or I'd push him to the wall 
you know? And so that it's fun that they're swimming. And I love that there's a lot of things that, that can feel, I don't love this part, but there's a lot of things for me that feel really frustrating because it's like, we've seriously been working on this forever, you know? And, um, and then to watch Mason swim, it's like, but they get there, they'll get there, you know, like it, it's just on their own timeline, but they're always going to get there. So that's my good news. That's excellent. Good news. Um, and I love that. Um, this is from a listener and I don't have, oh yeah. Raising Special Roses wrote to us and shared her good news by saying um, that her daughter, Mary, is walking like a pro and she will be two in October. She is determined to keep up with her big brother and he is a big part of her progress. Yay, Mary! Good job, Mary. And we love good news because there's so much to celebrate always. And I've always thought one of my favorite things about having my kids ha- have a Down syndrome diagnosis is that we get to celebrate so much more. I feel like I get to celebrate the tiny things and the big things. So friends, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your good news about your loved one who has Down syndrome. You can call and leave a voicemail and then your voice will be on the show at 424-442-9147. You can go to Lucky Few Podcast, um, email us. You can go to our Instagram account, the Lucky Few Pod and leave us a direct message. And those are all good ways to share your good news. And if you have a product or a business that wants to help us shout the worth of people with Down syndrome, then we would love to partner with you here. You can email us at hello at the for sponsorship opportunities. All right, friends, we're coming to the end of our show. So a huge, huge thank you to our editor and producer, Andy Lara, to our co-producer, Val Schleter, our sponsor this week, and all of you who have shared the Lucky Few podcast with friends and have listened faithfully and cheered us on. And Meg and Stephanie, again, thank you so much for being on the show and for all the work that you're doing. We're super thankful for that. Um, so guys, for- yeah, yeah thank, you. thank you. And listeners, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, make sure that you head over to the luckyfewpodcast.com. Click on the links that you can do the survey to help out with this research study. Um, and remember that you, dear, wonderful, amazing listener, supporting your loved one with Down syndrome, you are a shouter of worth and a narrative shifter. So keep on keeping on. We are cheering for you. And we will see you all next Monday on the Lucky Few Podcast. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to Lucky Few Podcasts. Remember to review our show on Apple Podcasts and check us out on all social media at the Lucky Few Pod. You can also support the show now via anchor.fm just by going to the website, scroll down to the bottom, and you can begin your support right now. Lastly, send us your good news by going to theluckyfewpodcast.com and sending us a message via text, voicemail, or email. See you next time. Bye.